In the dream, there's a kidney-shaped enamel spittoon, milk-white, and a gleaming metal razor such as old-fashioned barbers use. My mother's hand is on the razor, and then her face comes into view, swimming, as it were, towards me, pale, pear-shaped, about to mete out its punishment, to cut the tongue out of me. Then, with a glidingness, the dream is over, and I waken, shaking, having escaped death, not for the first time. In dream, my mother and I are enemies, whereas in life we were so attached we could almost be called lovers. Yes, lovers, insofar as I believed that the universe resided in her being. She was the hub of the house. The rooms took on a life when she was in them and a death when she was absent. She was real mother and archetypal mother. Her fingers and her nails smelt of food. Meal for hens and chickens, gruel for the calves, bread for us. Whereas her body smelt of myriad things, depending on whether she was happy or unhappy. And the most pleasant was a lingering smell of a perfume from the cotton wad that she sometimes tucked inside her brassiere. At Christmas time, it was a smell of fruitcake, soaked with grog, and the sugary smell of white icing, stiff as starch, which she applied with the rapture of an artist. Anything that had wonder attached to it was inevitably transposed onto her. For instance, when in the classroom one learned that our vast choppy lakes had the remains of cities buried underneath them, it seemed that in her too there were buried worlds. At Mass, when the priest turned the key of the gold-crested tabernacle door, I had the profane thought that he was turning a key in my mother's chest. As if reading my mind, she would pass her prayer book to me, solemn words in Latin, a language that neither of us was very conversant in. We lived for a time in such symbiosis that there might never have been a husband or other children except that there were. We all sat at the same fire, ate the same food, and when a gift of a box of chocolates arrived, looked with longing at a picture on the back, choosing our favourites in our minds. That box might not be opened for a year. Life was frugal and unpredictable. The harvest and the ripening hay, subject to the hazards of rain and ruin. Hovering over us, there was always the spectre of dead. Yet in our house, there were touches of grandeur, silver cloches that resembled the helmets of medieval knights stationed along the bog oak sideboard and mirrors encrusted with cupids kissing and cuddling. In drawers upstairs were folds of silk from the time when she worked long before in the silk department of a store in Brooklyn, the name of which ranked second only to heaven. On Sundays for Mass she would hurriedly don her good clothes that she had acquired in those times, or later cast-offs sent by relatives, Voile dresses cut on the bias that seemed to sway over her body. I would beg of her to read on them in the evening so that we could go for a walk and in summer at least 
enjoy the evening intoxication of stock in other people's gardens. We had an orchard, ploughed fields and meadows, but somehow I thought that a garden would be the prelude to happiness. The only flowers I had occasion to study were those painted on china cups and plates, splotches of gentian in cavities of green moss, and on the wallpaper, tinted rosebuds, so compact, so lifelike, one felt that one could squeeze or crush them. Those walks bordered on enchantment, what with neighbours of ours in some sudden camaraderie, greeting us profusely and always and irrationally the added possibility that we might walk out of our old sad existence. She was beautiful, my mother. She had beautiful hair, brown with bronzed glimmers in it, and blue-blue eyes that held within them an infinite capacity for stricture. To chastise one, she did not have to speak. Her eyes did it with a piercing gaze. But when she approved of something, everything seemed to soften, and the gaze, intensely blue, was like seeing a stained-glass window melt.